0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Obama administration is rethinking the royalty system for coal mined on public land to take account of the true costs.
1: So there's a few things that smell a little fishy about the current system. The climate damages are about six times the market value of the coal. You know, I don't think one has to be a raving environmentalist to think, hey, maybe that's not such
0: a good deal recalibrating the price of coal. Also, oceanographers discover a new wave phenomenon. You could call it the Caribbean whistle.
2: In a whistle that you blow down as an instrument, you've got a current of air going through the whistle, and it resonates at the frequency that fits nicely in that size of instrument. And that's the sort of thing that we've got going on in the Caribbean.
0: That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Congress has passed a bill that would require processors to tell consumers which foods contain genetically modified ingredients, although there are important exceptions. This would preempt state measures, including a stronger labeling law in Vermont that went into effect at the beginning of July. The food industry is generally urging President Obama to sign it into law, but critics, including Patti Lavera of Food and Water Watch, say the legislation sells the public short and should be vetoed. Patti Lavera joins us now. Welcome to Living on Earth, Patti. Thanks for having me. So what does this GMO bill at the federal level mean for consumers should President Obama sign it?
3: So the bill is Congress saying that states cannot pass mandatory labeling laws. And it replaces, you know, a good state law for somebody that went first and figured it out. It replaces that state law with supposedly a new national labeling system, but it's really filled with loopholes that aren't gonna give people labeling. It has a terrible definition of what a GMO is, so it would leave a lot of things uncovered. The requirement itself of how you disclose gives companies an option of putting the words on the package, which we know they don't wanna do, or using things like a QR code which we think is not acceptable because lots of folks can't access that technology. It has no enforcement provisions. There is some concerns in there about how this definition, that poor definition, would be used in other parts of our food policy, like the organic standards. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And we think the net effect is you're taking away state law that's providing labeling and you're creating a system that's really not going to result in meaningful labeling for consumers.
0: What are your thoughts uh, on another point of contention, namely that many ingredients derived from genetically modified crops wouldn't require a label?
3: Yeah, so there's a long list of problems that's on it too. So they put a definition in the bill that there's been a lot of dispute about. So the Food and Drug Administration wrote a memo that said, yeah, we read this definition as saying a lot of the current genetically engineered ingredients on the market, things coming from sugar beets, cooking oil from soybeans, things like that, could be processed to the point that they don't contain genetic material anymore. And under this definition, they may not be considered a bioengineered ingredient that would trigger labeling. And then there's yet another piece of that definition that is causing a lot of confusion about the trait, you know, the reason the crop has been engineered is for some specific trait. And there's some very strange language in this definition that it has to be A bioengineered ingredient has a trait that can't be found in nature. Lots of these traits can be found in nature. They just can't necessarily be found in these crops. So this definition is incredibly, incredibly worrisome and is one of those loopholes I'm talking about that may leave a lot of foods unlabeled in any
0: useful way. You say this legislation would create a law that has no enforcement provision. How is it a law then?
3: (laughs) Uh, You know, it says explicitly that USDA could not order a recall. For being mislabeled. And there's really no other provision. Most usually, when you write a law, you say, This is what the penalties are. There's no penalty discussion in here. And when asked, the supporters of the bill have said things like, Well, you know, if you're not being accurate, somebody could use, you know, state laws on fraud to go after you. But that was a choice, and they chose not to put any teeth in it.
0: Now, recently, the uh, National Academies of Science found that GMOs are both safe and, quote, no different from other foods. Given this official approval, why do you think it's uh, important to label them?
3: So we think that debate on safety is not over yet. We actually had a number of critiques of that that National Academy's paper, including some of the folks who helped write it, and many of whom had financial ties to the biotechnology industry. So we think the science conversation is not over about safety. But when you don't tell people where they are, you're not going to be able to track if there's a problem. We're not telling people they're eating this to see if we can then later determine there's a negative effect. And then there are other reasons besides health. You might think about this technology. There's a tremendous kind of corporate control facet to this issue in terms of patenting seeds, very expensive intellectual property agreements. There's lots of farmers who are concerned about GMOs. There's a chemical use and public health, worker health, environmental impact of the chemical use facet to this. This is a different way of producing food. And there's lots of reasons people might want to know about it. And they might like it, and they want to seek it out, and they need to know where it is. I mean, this this is a really big fight over a very basic concept of just saying we used it or we didn't, and then letting people decide for themselves.
0: To what extent was this legislation written by industry, in your view?
3: Well, that is a great question that we don't get to know. So there's a tremendous—this legislation came out of the Senate. They tried to pass a different version in March, and the bill failed. And so after that, that failure in March, the two— leaders of the Senate Ag Committee, the Democrat and the Republican, Debbie Stabenow from Michigan as the Democrat, Pat Roberts from Kansas as the Republican. They went into these negotiations and they wrote this new version of the bill. It never went through committee again. It never had a hearing. There were very few, I mean, essentially no opportunities for meaningful amendments. So that leaves us to wonder who was in that room. We weren't. Lots of other senators' offices were not. So this to us has industry's fingerprints all over it, but we didn't see the process because the process was very secret.
0: What reading do you get from the White House? What will they do with this?
3: Yeah, it's a good question what the White House is going to do. You know, we have a secretary of agriculture who is a big fan of these QR codes. We've heard him talking about how maybe this solves this problem we have with this dispute about labeling. It's been saying that for over a year. So that's worrisome for us. You know, we had candidate Obama in 2007 talking about people should know what's in their food. We should label GMOs. So we think that we have work to do. And lots and lots and lots of folks, you know, are contacting the White House and saying you need to veto this bill and live up to that campaign promise. So it's not clear.
0: So, what's your ideal vision for GMO labeling standard here in the United States?
3: Well, ideally, you know, we would have a national standard that gave people on package. Words on a package, mandatory labeling with a good definition. We don't have a Congress that's going to do that. That's pretty clear. So in the interim, if states were making progress on this, we think that's a good step. And this is how we change lots of laws. The states go first on lots of issues, and then eventually we build to an you know acceptable national standard. This is the industry coming to Washington, throwing their weight around and trying to stop that momentum that people have achieved at the state level.
0: Patty Lavera is assistant director of Food and Water Watch in Washington. Patty, thanks so much for taking the time.
3: All right. Thanks for having me.
0: It's been six months since the Obama administration put a moratorium on new coal leases on public lands. During the planned three-year pause, the Department of Interior is reviewing its management of taxpayer-owned coal, including its impact on global warming. And earlier this month, Interior moved to close a major loophole that has left royalties paid to the government artificially low for decades we called up Michael Greenstone, a former chief economist for the Obama White House, to explain. Professor Greenstone now teaches at the University of Chicago. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. So let's go with the basics at first. How does public land get leased for coal extraction? What's the process? So there's a three-part
1: process. The first is that the federal government puts up tracts of land that are eligible to be leased, and then companies can bid an amount to have access to that land. That's called the bonus bid. Then after that, they pay a rental fee of $3 per year per acre. And then finally, they pay a production royalties rate, which is supposed to be 12.5% of the value of whatever comes out of the land.
0: What's wrong with the present system in your view?
1: Yeah, so there's a few things that smell a little fishy about the current system. First is that in the bonus bid phase, where different companies are in principal bidding and the taxpayer is being protected by them competing against each other, You actually have, according to a GAO report, that 90% of the leases since 1991 have had only one bidder. You know, I'm not an expert at bidding on coal land, but if I didn't have to compete against anyone, I'm pretty sure I could get a good price. Okay, so the bidding system is suspect. What about the next phase? So the rental fee, that seems straightforward. Companies pay $3 per year per acre. But the third phase, the production royalties phase, also has the feel that something might not be quite right. There, the way it's supposed to work is that the federal government should collect 12.5% of whatever the value of the product is, in this case, the coal. But recent investigations suggest that actually what is happening is that the bidder is selling the coal to a company that it has partial ownership in at a very low price. And then the 12.5% is collected on that low price. And then that company that is partially owned or wholly owned by the original leaser then sells it at the global price for coal. And in that sense, the 12 percent is being collected on a much smaller number than is fair.
0: So talk us through the new Department of Interior Regulations. How are they gonna change that system?
1: The idea is a requirement that the 12.5% be collected on an arm's length transaction. So that is effectively on the final price and not on what I sell it to my brother or what I sell it to my cousin for. So yeah, I think, you know, when one examines the coal leasing program, a different area that is probably not working as well as it should is that the environmental impacts of the leasing of coal are not taken account for in the leasing program at all. Uh, the U.S. government has something called the social cost of carbon, and that's the monetary value of the damages associated with the release of an extra ton of CO2 into the atmosphere. The number that they use, and in full disclosure, I was worked in the Obama administration and helped develop that number, but the number they use is $40 a ton. So that is an extra ton of CO2 emitted into the atmosphere is expected to cause $40 worth of climate damages.
0: And how much does coal cost in the marketplace?
1: So what's fascinating is the spot price or the value of a MMBTU of coal is about 66 cents. The climate damages associated with that same MMBTU are about $3.89. And so just to put that in very plain English, the climate damages are about six times the market value of the coal. You know, I don't think
0: one has to be a raving environmentalist to think, hey, maybe that's not such a good deal. So how often does the government take into account the social cost of carbon when setting regulations?
1: Yeah, so the U.S. government first set a social cost of carbon in 2009. And then there was a very small revisions of it in 2010. And then I think again in 2013. And it has at this point been used in scores of regulations. And so basically any regulation that has carbon reduction, be it CAFE standards or energy efficiency standards, all have as a benefit of those regulations, reductions in CO2. And what the social cost of carbon does is it allows one to convert those tons of CO2 into dollars. And that way, one can compare the benefits of regulations that have CO2 as their benefit to the costs, which are measured in dollars. The way that this could be incorporated into the leasing of access to fossil fuels on federal lands, be it in coal or natural gas or petroleum, would be if we return to the bonus bid phase of the auction. And in that phase, one could just set a reserve price, and that reserve price would be equal To the climate damages and so if no one was willing to pay more than that reserve price that is the environmental damages then the resource wouldn't be used but if its use in the marketplace was more valuable than that environmentally determined reserve price then the resource would be used and provide all the benefits that energy helps to provide
0: so that'd be a piece of change not only would you be paying a one-time leasing fee but you'd essentially be paying this surcharge on a lifetime of extracting. But this would effectively mean leave it in the ground. Well, it depends on the resource. In the case of Powder River Basin
1: coal, on average, the climate damages are much larger than the market value. And I think many tracts would then become non-economical to utilize. But in the case of natural gas, in the case of petroleum, the benefits measured by the spot price that those resources go for, Exceed the climate damages, and I think we would continue to use them, although there would be a greater collection of revenue for the federal government that could be used for a variety of things. So, how would this affect export coal? Uh, This would probably reduce exporting of coal, and I think what is at the heart of that question is that emissions have the same effect uh, wherever they occur, and this would mean that we were not just simply transferring emissions from the United States to another country. Is that what we're doing now? There's a risk that when we have things like the Clean Power Plan, that it becomes expensive to burn coal in the U.S. power system and that that coal gets exported elsewhere and used elsewhere. By embedding the social cost of carbon or the monetized value of the climate damages in the initial leasing price, that is a hedge or a safeguard
0: against that. So what do you say to people who say, you know, we just can't trust the markets to get us off dirty fuels? Well, they're right about that in the following sense. We have not set up
1: markets, by and large, where the prices of energy reflect the damages of different fuels. And we're just beginning to alter markets. But markets, in the end of the day, give us what we ask them to give us. And so as long as prices don't reflect climate damages, we'll make choices that don't take account of that.
0: Michael Greenstone is at the University of Chicago, where he directs the Energy Policy Institute. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Head Start is a U.S. government program designed to give children from vulnerable low-income families a better shot at doing well in school as well as later in life. Today we have a story of another intervention program based in the wetlands of Concord, Massachusetts, but this one is for turtles, and Living on Earth's Jenny Doring went to check it out.
4: On a summer evening at Great Meadows National Wildlife Refuge, you're surrounded by tall reeds, lily pads on shallow ponds, and turtles. And if you're really lucky, you'll spot the dark, high-domed shell and bright yellow throat of a Blanding's turtle basking on a log. The turtles are right at home here, but Massachusetts lists them as a threatened species. That's partly because young Blanding's turtles face many dangers.
5: They'd have maybe a 1 in 80, 1 in 100 chance of living to be adults.
4: That's Brian Windmiller, the Executive Director of Grassroots Wildlife Conservation. The nonprofit is working to shift those odds and give baby Blanding's turtles a better start in life, appropriately by sending these youngsters to school so young humans can care for them and raise them for a year.
5: And we call that head-starting, you know, from like the human head-start program. We give the little turtles a head-start in life. We give them at least a 40-fold increase in their chances of surviving to adulthood.
4: The Head Start cycle begins each summer, during turtle nesting season, when Brian and his team search for the mother Blanding's nest to protect them. I tag along, and we start by getting our feet wet. One of the interns working at Grassroots this summer wades into the thigh-deep water at Great Meadows.
6: I'm Chris Hickling. Uh, I'm going to be a rising senior at the University of Richmond.
4: Wearing rubber chest waders like Chris, I follow him into the pond and we head for a large mesh trap set up a few yards from the money bank.
5: So that we can determine how many there are, how many boys, how many girls, how many young ones, how many old ones, and so that we can get hold of some of the ladies and we can radio track them to where they nest, uh, we start out by trapping them.
6: Chris opens the trap. All right, what do we got? We have two painted turtles and one Blanning's turtle. And this Blanning's turtle does not appear to be fully grown. The shell's pretty worn for a young turtle.
4: The team uses a marking system that gives each turtle a number, so they can record it in a database. This turtle's shell is about six inches long, and Chris points to marks notched around the edge.
6: So how we mark them is, so these are the ones, the tens, the hundreds, and the thousands. Uh, And each of them has a notch number. So this would be one, two, three. You see is notched here. So
4: it's like going around the face of a clock.
6: Exactly. Counting
4: around Yeah, yeah clockwise. and a clockwise, exactly. Yeah.
6: So this one was raised in one of the classrooms around here uh, at some point.
4: Brian takes a look at the shell markings and identifies this turtle as number 401.
6: That's
5: really, really cool. So that turtle hatched in 2008, released in 2009. It's actually the first year that we had started turtles and this would have been the first in that group.
4: The Head Start program is crucial because Blanding's turtle hatchlings are an easy snack for predators. Their tiny, half-dollar-sized shells are actually folded inside the egg, and Brian Windmiller says they're still soft for months after they hatch.
5: So we take them when they're at that real vulnerable stage, and we give them to schools, and they raise the turtles for nine months, take care of them all winter, keep them warm, feed the turtles as much as they want, And in that environment, they grow super quick. So when we let them go, they're on average about 12 times, sometimes 15 or 20 times heavier. They've got a much bigger shell, really strong shell. They don't have to worry about chipmunks. They don't have to worry about bullfrogs. They don't have to worry about blue jays and garter snakes.
4: But natural predators aren't the only hazards that threaten the turtle hatchlings.
5: Sometimes they'd be destroyed completely unintentionally by people, because sometimes they nest in farm fields that would get plowed, or they nest in people's perennial beds that might get turned over and stuff like that.
4: Brian says that because of these threats from both natural predators and human development, the Blanding's turtle population here has been declining for decades.
5: Only about 50 adult Blanding's turtles here at Great Meadows spread among a bunch of wetlands. And that's down from probably 150 in the early 1970s. So our overall goal here is to help restore this population.
4: And despite having just a few dozen adult Blanning's turtles, the population at Great Meadows is actually the third largest in Massachusetts and the fifth largest in the Northeast. So boosting numbers here could give the species a significant leg up locally. In the pond at Great Meadows, Chris and I wade through the cool water to check another trap.
2: Whoa,
6: another Blandings, a big one. That's really big. Yeah.
4: The shell is about nine inches long and dome-shaped.
6: So that's a male, because um, it doesn't have a radio tracker. <laughs> so that's the easiest way to tell, because we don't, you know, we're concerned with finding the nests in the females, uh, and the males have nothing to do with it at that point. This is one of the bigger ones I've seen. And his number is you know, his shell's very worn, and you can see the algae all on the shell here.
4: Brian takes a look at the turtle and recognizes it as one he's caught before.
6: By looking at this guy,
5: even though we, we first caught him about five years ago, this turtle is at least 60.
4: Blanding's turtles have a similar lifespan to humans. Scientists guess that they can live up to 90 years, but no one is sure, because there's not enough data about the species yet. Brian explains that these turtles we've just caught will contribute a couple more data points to what's known about them.
5: So we'll get these guys measured in wave, and weighed, then they'll be released here, but we're going to start on our main business for the evening, which is looking for the moms. So we'll start by going up in the tower and we're gonna check with a radio tracking receiver. We're gonna check on the signals of the moms that haven't nested yet around here. And we'll get a sense of where they are and then we're gonna go look for some of them.
4: The metal 20 foot high tower overlooks most of Great Meadows and is a good high point for radio tracking. We meet up with Leah Kablik, a US Fish and Wildlife Service biologist who helps with the tracking. Leah turns on the receiver and holds the antenna over her head, pointing it in different directions. The beeping sound clues Leah in to where the turtle could be. It's faint right now because this turtle's not close. Do they all sound the same? Yeah, each like beep sounds the same as all the others. It's just knowing what frequency that you have programmed into the receiver.
5: The turtle has a radio station, and it's just like all the turtle radio stations, the different turtle radio stations are playing exactly the same tune but you can listen to all the different ones that sound exactly the same just by dialing in your your particular channel so this year all together we're tracking 11 females here at great meadows one of whom we're we're just not picking up a signal from two have nested and uh, so with the one that's not working i guess that leaves us uh eight run after right now we should uh, we should go start off looking for 2028
4: we drive to a quiet neighborhood just a short distance away the lawns are well kept the backyards have big shade trees and we see several residents hanging out on their porches on this fine june evening
5: yeah well we're over at the side of this house and uh, this is where chris and and stephanie and leah last night tracked turtle number 2028 and They put a little thread bobbin on her just as a visual way of tracking her in case she decided to nest late at night. The turtles almost always nest as it's getting dark Uh, and usually they're done by 11 or so, but some of them like to stay really late and we don't, so if people need to leave then sometimes we put these thread bobbins. So as the turtle walks the thread just spools out until it runs out and the turtle just walks away. Um, They don't detain the turtle, but unfortunately in this case the the thread broke. So now we'll go find the turtle with a radio.
4: Actually, it turns out a well-meaning neighbor thought the turtle was trapped and the Good Samaritan cut the thread. But on the whole, Brian says, having the neighborhood involved is a great boon for turtle conservation.
5: If you do it right, if you involve the people to the extent that you can, the local human population can be an asset for conservation instead of a problem. Because that's the, the tendency. Biologists assume that people are always the problem. And yet here, the turtles are nesting in people's front yards. People are on, you know, they tell us, they call us when they see turtles. They're looking out for the turtles. They're looking out for the nests. We have several thousand school kids in Massachusetts who raise young turtles for us as part of this conservation program. So people are in all kinds of ways directly helping out.
4: Leah starts moving around with the radio tracking equipment. Getting an accurate signal is proving difficult because the radio waves bounce off the flat sides of the houses. I ask Brian where the turtle we're looking for, number 2028, would most likely be nesting.
5: So, well, if she's going to be nesting, she's going to be nesting in an open, relatively sunny place. So there's a good chance the turtle right now is just continuing to kind of hide in some of the the shrubs and plantings near the house. Yeah. The planting turtles take a long time. The moms are really meticulous about finding a good spot to nest. And they almost never nest the first night that they come out of the water. They'll often spend a few days a week sometimes on land. Sometimes they'll walk around, which is like chasing them around these neighborhoods. And they dig a few holes there, don't like it, dig a few holes there and check out an area. And sometimes they'll go all the way back to the wetlands of Great Meadows and they'll hang out in the water and then come back a few days later and finally nest.
4: We keep searching for 2028, but she's proving elusive. A resident comes up to Leah to say she'd seen the turtle not long before. Okay. She was like right up on the pavement and just wanted to let you know. That was the last time I saw her. Okay. Maybe 45 minutes ago.
7: Oh, really? Yeah,
4: yeah, so it wasn't that long.
7: Okay, thank you.
4: And I'm not sure how fast they move, surprisingly fast.
7: And it had the antenna and it had uh, duct tape on it. So it was basically where that watering can is. Oh, it was
6: okay. right at that corner.
5: By far the loudest spot is still moving the ivy here.
4: Finally, Brian locates the turtle in the front yard of the house next door.
6: Yeah, she's in the mulch. Looks like she's digging right now. You can see the, the pile of mulch just behind her that she's kicked out of the way right there on the edge. Yeah, she's definitely working. Yeah. You know, she's certainly <laughs> trying to do something over there.
4: We need to be really quiet and keep our distance to make sure we don't disturb her.
5: Yeah, I mean, you never know. The turtles are funny. I mean, over, turtles who nest over here, right, are obviously used to seeing people. And this turtle, we've caught this turtle, I think this is 2028. 20, I think we first caught this turtle 10 years ago as a juvenile. It's a pretty young mom. So she's used to people but just instinctively Blanding's turtles, all turtles, are very wary when they're first starting to commit to laying their eggs. Once they start laying their eggs, it's like they go in a trance and it doesn't matter what's going on around them, they're gonna try and finish. But before she actually starts laying her eggs and commits herself to her nesting spot, The best thing is to leave her be right now. She's clearly, if she's digging, she's just started. So the best thing is for us to go concentrate on the other turtles and see where they are right now, and then we'll come back and check on her later and see what she's doing.
4: With Brian and the rest of the team, we walk over to the edge of Great Meadows, just down the street from the nesting turtle, to try to check on the other females. Chris explains how the tracking works each night.
6: The first thing we do is we usually check from the tower to get kind of a signal of whether in the upper or lower pool. By this time of
5: evening, if the turtle is in the swamp, she's not going to nest tonight. I mean, we're like 99% sure. The turtles are individuals. You get some turtles that don't read the books, want to do their own thing, and decide at two in the morning to come out and nest, and we're just not going to find that one. But the great majority of turtles, if they're still in the water you know, this time of the evening, they're not nesting tonight. So that's really what we're trying to do, is say, okay, is it in the water that way, or or are we missing it and maybe it's over here on land and we need to go find it?
8: Yeah, I have a signal that way.
4: The radio signals tell them that the other female turtles are all in the water. So we go back to the house, where number 2028 is digging her nest in the mulch to see if we can gauge her progress. It's hard to tell, but Brian has a guess.
5: She's got a big hole. I think she's, she's just starting to cover up because I couldn't see the eggs in there. So I'm guessing that she's already pushed, pushed some dirt over the top egg. Yeah. So at this point, it's nice because I'm in my neighborhood. This is the point where I usually go over to my house. I sit down, watch a little bit of the Red Sox game if they're still on, <laughs> have a beer, <laughs> come out in half an hour, <laughs> check on her. She'll probably spend, at this point, because she's got still a lot of a hole to fill, she'll probably spend another hour or so over here. They're kind of very slow but steady.
4: While we wait, Brian explains that the ponds at Great Meadows National Wildlife Refuge aren't actually natural. People created them as duck ponds for hunting, and many of the turtles still living at Great Meadows were here first.
5: They predate Great Meadows. Those Mm -hmm. ponds were created in um, the 1950s, so a lot of the you know the older turtles, at least, you know, were alive before those ponds were created, mm-hmm. and so they're used to, or at least were born into a radically different environment. Henry David Thoreau caught a Blanding's turtle at Great Meadows in 1854. He killed it because um, a buddy of his, Louis Agassiz had started the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard and really wanted a Blanding's turtle for his collection. So Thoreau gave him a Blanding's turtle and then wrote in his journal about how guilty he felt over killing the Blanding's turtle. And you can still see the Blanding's turtle. It's on display at the MCZ at Harvard. And so the, the turtles were here, but the environment was totally different. I mean, you imagine it was called Great Meadows because a lot of it was, for wetlands were you know, kind of shallow, much more open, but not ponds.
4: An hour or so later, we return to the nest site, and Turtle 2028 is gone. Brian gently digs in the mulch to uncover her nest.
5: Yep, there we go. Yeah. So. Awesome. yeah. Okay. That's very cool. Yeah. So we can just just expose the top three eggs of her nest. Actually, you can just see the at least four. Yeah, they're about four inches deep. We're very glad she started about 7.30. It's now about 11.30. looks like she pretty recently finished. So this is awesome. And this is a really typical kind of place for the planning turtles to nest here. She's um, kind of near their, their uh, stone paved walkway over at the front entrance of the house. And um, right in their mulch bed by their little perennial... Uh, border uh, about 10 feet off the side of the house uh, very nice spot for her nest and so now we'll just cover it back up with dirt and like she did like mom did and uh, put a screen over it so the raccoons and skunks can't get it
4: Brian goes to the car to get the protective metal screen and
6: stakes Do you think
5: So here in in the suburbs, it's mostly skunks and raccoons. Uh, foxes dig up turtle nests sometimes, too. In, in this neighborhood in particular, there are a lot of skunks around here, and uh, they're very good at finding turtle eggs.
4: Brian thinks nesting Blanding's turtles may intentionally find refuge in housing developments.
5: The great majority of them nest in places just like this, right by people's houses. And um, at least I like to believe that the... The turtles have sort of figured it out that this is actually in many ways a better place for them to nest first they're able to find these warmer little microhabitats um, next to asphalt driveways and uh, little bits of landscape rock and in mulched areas where also the mulch will absorb um, some of the sun's radiation mm-hmm. but in addition i think the turtles may have learned that when they nest in a place like this right up against somebody's house It's really rare for raccoons and skunks to bother them.
4: He lays a square of chicken wire mesh on the spot where the nest is buried and pushes metal stakes firmly into the mulch to hold it down. With the screen in place, Turtle 2028's nest is protected. And for tonight, the work of Brian Windmiller, Chris Hickling, Leah Kablik, and Grassroots Wildlife Conservation is done.
5: And then we just wait and we put the, uh, the temperature loggers down by the eggs to monitor the nest temperature so we can try and guess whether they're going to be boys or girls and um, just wait until uh, late August or September when the babies come out.
4: And we plan to be back too, to check on those babies when they hatch. For Living on Earth, I'm Jenny Doring in Concord, Massachusetts.
0: Your comments on our program are always welcome. Call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Our email address is comments at LOE.org. Once again, that's comments at LOE.org. And visit our webpage at LOE.org. That's LOE.org. Coming up, the deep, deep bass voice of the singing sea is just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned.
9: Support for living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Time to check in on stories beyond the headlines. Now we'll join Peter Dykstra of DailyClimate.org and Environmental Health News as EHN.org. Hi there, Peter. Kind of steamy down there in Conyers, Georgia, huh?
8: Well, it's 90 degrees or more for the umpteenth consecutive day here. We'll talk a little bit later about the heat, but you know, there have been a lot of intensive efforts to hamstring the U.S. EPA from doing its job, enforcing pollution laws and protecting the environment. But here's one from Congress that's just a tiny bit over the top.
0: Peter, you're saying Congress going over the top? It's impossible.
8: There's an amendment on the bill that funds EPA, the Interior Department, the Forest Service, and other agencies. And Congressman Richard Hudson of North Carolina has attached the following, and I quote, None of the funds made available by this act may be used to pay the costs of any officer or employee of the Environmental Protection Agency for official travel by airplane.
0: Wait, let's see if I get this right. Republican Representative Hudson wants to put the entire EPA on its own no-fly list?
8: That's right. And in fairness to Congressman Hudson, nothing in the amendment would prohibit EPA employees for paying for government travel out of their own pockets. Nor is there a ban on traveling by greyhound, covered wagon, stagecoach, or camel to monitor and inspect EPA's over 1,300 Superfund sites, tens of thousands of permitted air and water discharges, mine reclamation sites, pesticide application sites, hazardous materials production and storage sites, and more.
0: Hey, don't forget Amtrak, as long as Congress doesn't cut its budget any further. Peter, are you getting the impression that maybe the congressman just doesn't want EPA to be able to do its job?
8: It's a little bit different than that, Steve. Congressman Hudson has previously introduced measures to prevent EPA from regulating backyard barbecues and also from regulating NASCAR emissions, and those are things that apparently EPA had no intention of doing anyway.
0: More fodder for a most interesting political year. Hey, what else did you bring us today?
8: Well, there's a little bit more of the same terrible news we've already heard enough of. Another environmental activist in Honduras was abducted and beaten to death last week. Lesbia Yaneth Urquia was a vocal opponent of hydro dam construction and mining on indigenous lands in the nation that had already been deemed the deadliest place on earth for environmentalists.
0: We reported on the murder of Berta Cáceres, the Honduran environmental leader, and Goldman Prize winner just a few months ago. And then just a few weeks after that, another Honduran activist, Nelson Garcia, was shot
8: dead by Honduran
0: security forces.
8: And the watchdog group Global Witness says there have been over a hundred murders of activists in Honduras since the year 2010. Well, Peter,
0: give us something, and please, preferably not bad news, from the Environmental History Files for this week.
8: Well, we said we're going to talk about the heat, and this month marks two anniversaries in the history of our trying to cool off. On July fourteenth, 1847, a physician named John Gorey was looking for a way to help his patients in Apalachicola, Florida, to stay cool while dealing with yellow fever, malaria, and other tropical diseases. He designed a machine that cycles highly compressed air to produce ice. This is in Florida in 1847. So every time we cool down with a summer beverage, we can thank Dr. John Gorey. Oh, yes and no. Gorey obtained a patent for his ice machine in 1851, but then his financial backer died, and then Gorey died a few years later. He endured a lot of criticism from afar. Some of the big northern newspapers scoffed at the idea that a crackpot claimed to have made ice in steamy Florida. Other inventors came along using ammonia instead of compressed air and ice making came of age in the last half of the 19th century. It revolutionized the food industry, it accelerated the race to conquer the western U.S. for cattle grazing and more, and eventually enabled large-scale fisheries, it filled billions of fast food drink cups, and last month of course it allowed the National Hockey League to place a new team in Las Vegas. Yes, that's right folks, hockey in Vegas. Okay, what's your other cool invention? On July 17th, 1902, Willis Carrier of Pittsburgh laid out plans for what would become known as the world's first air conditioning system. Today, we would probably consider it to be more like the world's first dehumidifier. He dried out the thick summer air, and later on, Carrier and others combined his design with refrigeration machines to actually cool the air down.
0: And today, folks consider air conditioning more of a necessity than a luxury, but, uh, you know, it can
8: come with a huge carbon footprint unless it's powered by renewables. That's right. In 1973, 52% of U.S. homes had AC. Now it's over 90%. I tried to look up the percentage of homes in Anchorage, Alaska that have AC, and I couldn't find a hard number, but I found 24 Anchorage businesses listed as offering air conditioning repair. And if you want to take a little snapshot of the rest of the world, AC sales have doubled in China in the last five years, and one estimate says the city of Mumbai, India, devotes 40% of its electric output just to power air conditioners.
0: And if they're burning coal, they're heating up the world to try to stay cold. Chilling statistic, Peter. Peter Dykstra is with Environmental Health News. as ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Talk to you again soon, Peter.
8: All right. Thanks a lot, Steve. Talk to you soon.
0: And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. Sailors grow misty-eyed dreaming of the song of the sea, but many folks see that description as merely a charming metaphor. But now science has caught up with art and reports that, yes, the sea does sing in a way, and it sings a very deep A flat. Researchers at the UK's National Oceanographic Center in Liverpool have recently discovered that a cyclical pattern of water flow in the Caribbean Sea resonates in a way that can be detected from outer space. Researcher Joanne Williams is part of the Liverpool team looking at this phenomenon and joins us now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Hello. So um, your team is looking into this cyclical pattern of water flow in the Caribbean that makes a whistle. Please explain to me what are the mechanics of how a whistle would work here?
2: Okay, so in a whistle that you blow down as an instrument, you've got a current of air going through the whistle And it resonates at the frequency that fits nicely in that size of instrument. And that's the sort of thing that we've got going on in the Caribbean. So we've got a current of water, the Caribbean current, going right through the basin. And the wavelength that fits nicely in that basin just happens to be the right wavelength that also likes to resonate at that latitude in the ocean. So it's the Rosby wavelength.
0: Tell me, what is a Rossby wave and how is this different from any other kind of wave?
2: So, a Rossby wave is a very low frequency wave that you can get anywhere in the oceans. And what you have to understand is that you get very high frequency waves, the sort of thing that if you stand on the beach you can watch the surfers and they're coming in every couple of minutes. And then you get these very, very low frequency things that take days or months to cross the ocean. And Rossby waves are particular wavelength according to the latitude in the ocean. And at the Caribbean, it would take about 120 days to cross the Caribbean Basin, which is a thousand kilometers.
0: And uh, so these are called Rossby waves. Who's Rossby?
2: Rossby was a early 20th century scientist who studied waves in the atmosphere on Earth, but those studies also apply to the ocean.
0: Well, let's take a listen to this wave, except. I guess we can't really hear the wave itself because how low in frequency is it? Remind me please.
2: It's about 30 octaves below what you'd find on a piano. So, uh nothing can hear this.
0: Not even Barry White's voice is going to get down there, I guess, huh?
2: Not even Barry White. <laughs>
0: All right, well, let's take a listen to this sound as it is sped up. How many times?
2: 2 to the power of 32.
0: That's <laughs> that's a that's a big speed up. So, um, in musical terms, what key is this whistle in?
2: So this whistle, uh, it plays the note A-flat, but it's an A-flat 31 octaves below what you can hear. It's very, very low indeed.
0: Now, when an orchestra plays an A, it's very nice when it goes down, when it flats down to the A-flat, it really warms things up. So we have a warm wave here, huh?
2: (laughs) You could call it that. Suitable for the Caribbean. So, where
0: else might you find this on the planet?
2: So you might see it in other enclosed seas, but the particular thing with the Caribbean is it's just exactly the right length to fit in the Rosby wavelength. So you get a lovely resonance there and an echo chamber, if you like.
0: So, of course, when you say this can be heard from space, you need air to actually hear things. So this is a metaphorical thing that you're saying about it being heard from space.
2: Absolutely. And what we're actually recording from space is the satellite uses radar to bounce off the sea surface and measure the height of the sea surface. And it's called satellite altimetry. It passes over a particular point in the ocean about every 20 days. And as the Earth turns underneath, it passes over every point in the ocean.
0: How high is this wave?
2: It's only a few centimetres, a few inches, if you like. (laughs) I remember my audience. But down in the Caribbean, they haven't got very big tides, so it's it's big enough to show up.
0: So, how do these findings inform our understanding of sea level rise, especially in terms of coastal communities? And of course, we're concerned about sea level rise with our changing climate.
2: Absolutely. And and what this will help us do is to take out one of the signals from the sea level records. So the more signals you understand, if you can take those out of the record, then what's left, it's easier to fit trends and understand what's going on with the the long term rise. And also to make predictions of what you might see over the next couple of years and whether, for example, one of the peaks in this wave might coincide with other peaks and cause a particular uh, flooding incident. When you find a strange signal in an old data set, it's, it's really nice to know where it comes from. and It's very reassuring when you find that it fits in nicely with all the ocean physics that you understand already.
0: Joanne Williams is with the National Oceanography Centre based in Liverpool, England. Thank you so much, Joanne, for taking the time with us today.
2: Thank you very much.
0: And may the wave be with you.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Goodbye.
0: Off to a much colder sea now, the chilly Hudson Strait off Canada. There you'll find Akpatak Island and its many polar bears. They come there to hunt the large colony of seabirds called thick-billed myrrh to steal eggs when they can or take the chicks on their first flight if they fail to reach the sea. But as our resident explorer Mark Seth Lender observed, eggs and chicks are only snacks for a hungry polar bear. And by now, some Bruins have been through so much with nursing and protecting their cubs that they're down to their last reserves. Left, front, left, back, right, front, right, back, Shluff, schleff, schluff,
7: schliff, she lifts as she sniffs <laughs> looks behind, looks ahead as she schliff, 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 schluff, and on, along the sand, and all above her, the limestone cliffs of Akpatok. 250 meters tall, artifact of an ancient continental thrust. Cascading towards the beach, the cone-shaped talus mounds, hourglass of an ancient tearing down. She is young beside the land, young among polar bears. Inside herself, inside the place she knows, polar bear is growing old. Shoulders pointed, hips narrow and low, She does not, cannot hurry, nor is there need. She cranes her scrawny neck that was thick and muscled as a hundred-season oak, her black snout pointing, searching, singling out a thing that only she can see. She stops and stares. The cubs that nursed her substance away in the frozen snow cave and for all that self-consuming time prowling the land are gone without a trace except for the diminished state of her. Does she think of them now, reminded by her stapled gait, a forearm that cannot lift or lengthen with natural ease, the bloody puncture marks where his teeth sank deep, the dark patch on her shoulder raked by claws when she fought for them? These are the readily visible signs. As to what she feels, thinks, imagines of her past and future self, the absence, like the turned face among the crowd, only the movement is caught. The thoughts, the pain at living, lost in the silence. She lies down, the wounded limb stretched out upon a last remaining patch of snow. Seven thick-billed myrrh row past, their little wings against the wind, Between their path and the polar bear, the water drifts blue to green as it shallows along the shore. The sky is untempered in its clarity, and not a single cloud. The flood tide rolls beneath the omnipresent sun of these longest Arctic days, this shortest time of Arctic year, and the lingering scent of cold always pervades. She rises and continues toward the distant headland where the last blue icebergs are marooned, both polar bear and ice diminishing into the inexorable paradox that being becomes non-being. ¶¶
0: On Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Jenny Doring, Annika Green, Jay Feinstein, Emmett Fitzgerald, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Helen Palmer, Charlotte Ruddy, Adelaide Chen, Jennifer Marquis, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from John Jesso, Jay Grigo, and Noel Flat. Special thanks this week to Adventure Canada. Alison Liererstein composed our themes, and you can find us anytime at LOE.org. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, it's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
9: Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, Developing the Next Generation of Environmental Leaders